Welcome to Air Brooklyn. This is your host, Ben Piven. Today we're talking about the Ask Project, and that's a novel way that Corey Gil Shuster, an Israeli-Canadian, has devised to ask ordinary people in Israel and Palestine questions that are often unanswered. And the way he does this, he poses questions such as, for Palestinians, are you able to criticize your culture? Or for Israelis, do you believe in heaven and hell? So let's hear from Corey about his methodology and how he got started with this. Hello. Hi, Corey. This is Ben here. How are you? Hey, Ben. Good. How are you? Thanks very much for uh, participating. Yeah, let's talk about your background for a little bit, and I'm just kind of curious how you got into the field of conflict resolution. Sorry, I'd lived in Israel already for about 10, 15 years, something like that. I never really did anything, had anything to do with Palestinians or in, in that sense. I mean, I would go visit the West Bank um, when during the Oslo years to just sort of check it out, you know, what the conflict was, was all about. And then when the, during the Oslo years, there was a lot of violence in Israel. A lot of Palestinians were blowing up buses, uh, which led to the Second Intifada, where there's constant violence going on, at least on the Israeli side. Living in Israel at the time, we just didn't understand where this was coming from. It just didn't make any sense. There was a peace process. Palestinians were, at least from, from my perspective, were getting what they wanted, yet they were trying, really trying to kill us. So it didn't make any sense to us. At the same time, with me and my family, we decided to move to Canada. After I decompressed, it took about six months or a year. I wanted to sort of understand what it was that I had experienced just living in Israel, just even just as a, a completely, you know, not being a participant, so being an observer. So I did uh, a master's, or I studied a master's in conflict studies at Ottawa University, and that really helped me sort of understand what's really going on and some mechanisms of, of understanding. Then after that, I moved, we moved back to Israel as a family. I was kind of convinced I, I liked this area of conflict resolution. I didn't know where I fit into it. So when I moved back to Israel, I looked uh, for jobs in, in this area. Now, are you originally Canadian? Are your parents originally Israeli, then Canadian? Or just explain briefly. I'm entirely, I, I am, well, I was going to say entirely Canadian. My grandparents all came from Europe. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I grew up in a very, you know, um, pro-Israel house, um, but I personally didn't care. I, I paid no attention to it, even as a teenager when friends, you know, the, the way in, in the diaspora is if you're Jewish and you're 15 or 16, your parents send you for a trip to Israel so you can connect to your roots. Mm -hmm. I didn't care. Couldn't care less. Just it was meaningless to me. And then I ended up going, actually, um, and then I kind of fell in love with the place. Now, I think that part of why you're successful with your Ask Project is because you have a North American identity, and you're able to withdraw from the standard biases that, that would plague someone who's actually from Israel, from Palestine, being able to step out of it being in this sort of generic kind of Western mold. I think that helps a lot to take on the guise of a social scientist, a journalist, an objective sort of outside observer, interlocutor. So maybe then let's speak to your sort of overall goals with the project and just so our audience can get a better sense for your motivations. Being led down a path that wasn't very truthful. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the goal, you know. And then I found on the Palestinian side, there was just so much heat, so much free anger that that didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. And then it kind of just morphed into, okay, well, 
Now it's just creating understanding, meaning, or at least for me to understand, what's really going on. Sort of take you back to when I said during the Oslo years I couldn't understand why Palestinians were bombing Israel. That was, you know, less had a, an impact on me, meaning if we're going to ever get into some kind of um, resolution uh, or agreement with them, how do I know that that next resolution, that next agreement is going to work? I don't, because really I don't know the other side, and they don't know us. I figured, well, at least we could find out what the issues are. We could find out what are people on the street thinking today about each of the issues. And I think it's just going to keep going. It could morph a little bit based on the, the questions that are asked and what people say. So however they take it, they can learn from it. Explain the methodology of your question and answer sessions. Uh, you just mentioned that you're not objective, and, and I find that interesting because judging by the questions you ask, you put yourself in, in pretty neutral, in a very neutral position. Explain your approach to how you ask questions. People send in questions through email, and then I kind of scan the emails. So every so often I'll see a question, I'll go, hey, I want to know that too. That's interesting. Or a lot of people will ask very similar questions, so I kind of morph it into one question. Or uh, something that I think is really topical, but not topical to the moment, in general, like if we're talking about um, refugees or, or um, Jews who came from Arab countries. That's something that seems to come up a lot. So I'll take that and I'll try to, either I'll take the actual question or if it's been asked in 12 different ways, I'll try to morph it into one kind of question, a general way, so I'm not sure if I'm exactly objective, to, I don't know if I change the question, but I, I kind of try to make it more, well, both I have to make it understandable to the people I'm asking. So people use words um, like somebody once said, do you think you have the moral high ground? Now, there's no phrase in Hebrew for moral high ground. There's no phrase in Arabic, as far as I know, for moral high ground. And so I had to obviously translate it in a way that's going to make sense to the person I'm asking. In that sense, that's based on me, what I think is the most neutral way of asking the question, to get the information that people will want to get. And I don't mean the answer they want, I mean the information. So, you know, people ask um, a lot of times in the question, it's sort of a gotcha question, like, obviously I'm right. So why, for example, you know, why did Israelis treat the Palestinians the way the Nazis treated the Jews? That's a gotcha question. That's obviously it's set up to say that there's a comparison between how Nazi Germany dealt with Jews and how Israel deals with Palestinians. I had to ask it in, in that way and in a way that Israelis will be able to respond to it. That's kind of how it works. And then who do I ask? I, I just roam the streets and I look for anyone who just seems average. Um, you know, I try men, women, young, old, anybody. And often, actually, when I, I generally go out with somebody because I feel kind of embarrassed, like an idiot, asking people questions on my own on the street. So I'll, I'll tell them, you choose people. I don't want to be the person always choosing. The, the point is to get a good cross-section of what society thinks about a particular topic. Now I'd like to play clips from two of the question videos that Corey asked. Here we go. The first one is in Nablus and Palestinian territories in the West Bank. And the second one, yes, of a settler also in the Nablus area. Oh, if you met an Israeli Jew here, yeah. what would you do? If he is a customer coming to, to my shop, he is welcome. Okay. And if he is coming as a Jew to, to make a problem, then it depends. Well, what's a problem? Give me an example of a problem. Suppose a soldier is coming here. Okay. It's different than a customer coming to buy something for me. 
What if somebody came and he wanted to rent? He wanted to rent the apartment or buy the apartment above you. Who's Jewish? Of course not. No. 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 But that's that's peaceful. He's just coming to live with you. Is it allowed for me to 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 take an apartment in Tel Aviv? Yes. No. Actually, it is. Yeah, it is. Actually, I am not allowed to enter. Actually, well, you need our, a permit, our, but you our land, it. our land, in in, uh, uh, in in Palestine, occupied Palestine. Well, the ironic thing is, you could technically buy an apartment. So, sorry. The ironic thing is, you could technically buy an apartment there. You could. It is impossible. Okay. It is impossible. Okay. Why do settlers attack Palestinians today? Um, I think that whoever asked that question just saw only one part of the video. Okay. Meaning, look at the broad picture. Who's attacking who? Look at who's no, you attacking who? Over the past, um, since 1982, thousands of Jews were killed, or hundreds were killed, thousands were injured. So, you look at the specific picture that the CNN decides to show you of, uh, of a uh, settler hitting a Palestinian, so-called. Just look at the whole picture. It's all cut off by CNN. It's all cut off by all the other media all over the world. And if you'll see the whole picture, you'll see that because those Arabs have been attacking Jews, sometimes Jews need to defend themselves. And even if it, it seems to be like a farmer, um, there's been many, many um, incidents where those so-called farmers turned into um, terrorists within one second. A relative of mine worked in Gush Katif in the 90s. He had a, uh, his main worker worked for him for 17 years. After 17 years, he stabbed him to death. So I can't um, trust any Arab that he's innocent unless he proves otherwise. Okay, but that's that's taking a defensive posture. What about the uh, burning of olive? Or just the other day, burning of olive groves, Palestinian olive groves. Part of the defend that we need to defend ourselves is, is make sure that the Arabs don't want to deal with us. Simple as that. So what does that mean? What what, what burning of it's the olive groves? It's turning defensive do? into offensive. That's all. So, okay. I have no reason to be offensive if I didn't have to be defensive. So what's the difference between what they do and what you do? The difference is that. Um, Meaning, aren't they saying the same thing in their mind? I was defensive, now I have to be offensive. This is the only way to get rid of these people. The, there's two basic, there's two basic, there's a strategic look and a tactical look. Basically, it goes back to the, to what we were talking about earlier, the historic background. Yes, and I believe that this is my country. Even though I believe this is my country, that doesn't mean that every Arab I will see, I'll kill him. That's because it's my country. Like we were talking earlier, we'll give him three options. But, um, even so, when he tries to conquer my land, I'll defend my land. Very fascinating exchanges there, Corey. Do you think it helps to look sort of ethnically ambiguous? I mean, I would say that your features are sort of generic, kind of Mediterranean. You wouldn't necessarily know 
someone you're asking a question to won't necessarily understand where you're from. How much do you think that helped? It helped, yes. As I, um, as I consult myself, um, being a middle-aged, balding, fat guy, <laughs> because you all, we all morph into the same person somehow. I don't know how that happens. And, you know, I'm kind of brownish, so... When I'm in the West Bank, um, people will speak to me in Arabic. Israelis will think I'm Israeli. Then if I speak in English, then they all think I'm American. I don't know. Somehow, I, I have this look that some, I get away with a lot. So uh, that I'm very lucky. If I were a woman, it would be even better because then, because then I'd probably get even more because then I wouldn't be seen as threatening in any way. Uh, that's an element of it. Although in the Palestinian territories, when I ask myself, nobody will answer me because... I don't speak Arabic, and they're very embarrassed. But for a lot of people, their English is so basic that they just feel too embarrassed. You know, I don't care where to ask. So I have my my interpreter. She she actually asks people. She's the one who approaches people. So I really love a lot of these questions that you've asked, and you've done this so many times now. But the the variety that you cover, ideologically, topically, it's it's amazing. You've asked so many different things that I'm always wondering um, that. I haven't necessarily had the opportunity to ask. So in terms of specific questions, I mean, maybe we could just talk about a few of your videos. So one that I thought was quite revealing was for Jewish settlers and asked why settlers attack Palestinians. What did you learn in that video from from those questions? For not all of them, but for some of the questions, I kind of know the responses I'm going to get. So I have to act a little bit more naive because the person watching the video is, has no idea. And the person who's explaining needs to explain in full. And since most people tend to speak in slogans and, you know, just things that they've heard, kind of knew going into it that people would say, not us, it's them. You know, we don't attack Palestinians, they attack us. Um, because that's what happens in conflict. It's never, it's never one-sided. It can't be. Because that would be, because if it were truly one-sided, it's like, you know, it's like a monologue. There's no partner. Uh, if it was truly one-sided, then Palestinians would have said, "We give up. You know, we you know take what you want." It couldn't be. You know, it couldn't be that one-sided. Every group in a conflict is a little bit self-deluded, meaning we all think we're good, they're bad, so we forefront the information going to make us look good and make them look bad we very rarely admit that we do horrible things to the other side. That rarely, rarely ever happens in conflict. If I had done an extend, like a, another video on a similar topic with, let's say, Jewish settlers, I might then be much more obnoxious in the way I ask the questions and more <laughs> saying, yes, but this and this happens, and giving you know, more examples to sort of satisfy everyone who would say, well, hey, what about Hamish, and what about you know, all these different terror attacks that had happened. Mostly when it's a newer topic, I try to be a little bit more general and then kind of go sort of more deep into the conflict side of it. You know, it reinforced how people in conflict tend to think. Same thing if I had asked something very similar on the Palestinian side, I'd asked similar questions. When I ask about why do Palestinians kill Israelis, they all say that doesn't happen. You know, they, I don't know, I'll give an example. Well, there was a pregnant woman, and they know in Islam you're not allowed to target a woman. A pregnant woman would be even worse. And so I give a specific example, and I get stories. I get ways of working around it that either I'm lying, it never happened, or they're just telling you that in the media, or it wasn't a woman, it was really a man, and he worked for the army, and they knew this, and so they killed him. People find mental acrobatics to find a way. 
so each side feels that they're okay. And it would be great if I could just pause and say, okay, everybody, this is what's happening. You know, these are the dynamics. I'm hoping people will kind of absorb if they watch enough of this. In some of the questions where I go a little bit deeper. One of the reasons why I think you are effective in getting reality and truth from people is that standard methodology for surveys and polls is very quantitative and just put some number out there for what percentage of Palestinians support, let's say, the two-state solution, what percentage would be willing to marry in Israel, what percentage, etc. Um, but what you're really good at is getting people to give this qualitative response to show their face in a way that really conveys their, if not individuality, their unique perspective on that issue. And the complexity of how they think, yeah. The nuance of it, the, the lack of binarism, it's this really complex picture of how people feel. The question that you pose to Palestinians, if you meet an Israeli, what do you do? I found that that was very revealing of so many levels and, and dimensions. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that particular inquiry. So we stood in front of a mosque, and as people came out, I asked a group of like, young people, and they turned out to be like very sweet and nice about it as well. So I don't know if they were answering it completely honestly. The instinct of what is honest to Palestinians and what is honest to Israelis is very different, meaning people always claim that. They say, oh, you're on film, they're, in their, they're on their best behavior. That may be true in Israel. The Palestinian um, culture, it's different. You're expected to be more or sound more harsh. That's, that's really fascinating. I think that part of the layered aspect of that question is the, the different ways that people in general will describe Israelis, Jews, Zionists. I noticed that the way the questions were phrased in Arabic by your interpreter, sometimes she would say Israeli, Yahud. So it would be like, okay, if you meet an Israeli Jew, because they wouldn't always quite understand if you just said Israeli. And so I think people react differently to the idea of, okay, a Jew, an Israeli, an Israeli Jew, a Zionist Israeli Jew. And so all of those things have very overlapping meanings for Palestinians or for others, but there is a different sense. Like, okay, is this a soldier, Jundi? Is this a civilian, Medini? And, you know, who, who are we talking about here? Is this a student? Is this someone I'm doing business with who's going to buy a tire from my shop, a falafel sandwich? You know, what obligation do I have to this person if I'm just a regular Palestinian and this is an Israeli who's oppressing me as a soldier? then I have the social obligation to my country, to my nation, to resist. But the, there are just so many different layers of that. Hopefully this comes through, at least this is what I get out of it, is that unfortunately we speak in a language, right? And languages, you know, I might say the word Israeli and mean Israeli Jew and maybe Israeli Arab, you know, in my mind. To them, you know, Israeli will mean something very different. You know, they'll think soldier, or they might think only Jews, or they might think, you know, whatever they, or Zionist. So it, it's a bit tricky sometimes, mostly when you're dealing with, I'm used to Hebrew. In Hebrew, I'm mostly okay, but in Arabic, like, we, we even, one of the questions was, are you willing to compromise? And it turns out there's actually no word in, in Arabic for compromise. It makes it difficult. <laughs> so, you know, it means, translates to, do you give up everything? Of course not. It's not what compromise means. So it's very difficult to gauge, you know, what someone is, is willing to do politically when you don't even have language around it. Hmm. Sort of all the, it's all the other stuff around it. Like, for example, I, one of the questions, so I ask people, do you, you know, what do you think about normalization with Israel? 
And they kept referring to themselves, uh, what, am I a dog? Am I an animal? You know, like, why would I normalize? And I couldn't understand this reference to animals. And it turns out that part of the word for normalization is root in, in breaking in a wild animal. Just that, just even if one or two of them did, you know, who said, what am I, what am I an animal? Like, I'm not sure if that's what they meant exactly, but it, the complexity of language makes everything so much more co- complicated. So one of the things, I had this visiting Christian, and he said, I don't understand. When I'm in the West Bank and I'm asking, and I ask people questions, why do I get very different responses to you? I get these lovely, wonderful, nice responses about how they want peace and blah, blah, blah. And, and I kind of thought about it, and I realized I think the only thing is, I ask an, a, a follow-up question. Do you believe in teaching peace in schools? And they all said yes. And then I said, do you believe, wait, does that include the Jews? And half of them said, no, of course not. So to them, teaching peace is about peace within you know, their, their nation, within their country, within maybe in the world. You know, the assumptions we make coming as outsiders is a bit problematic. What I mean by one thing you know, it might not be what you, how you interpret it. One of the more unique questions that you asked, I think, was for Palestinians, do you believe in restoration of the caliphate? And the looks that that question evinced on people's faces is really priceless. And what's your takeaway from that question? People ask a lot of uh, questions about religion. It's mostly Christians asking about Jews and Muslims and what they believe, oftentimes try to prove that Jesus is the, is the Messiah and the Savior and yada yada. But then every so often I break down and say, fine, I'll look at the most common ones. And So I did a bunch on Jesus, I, and then I figured I'll do some on Islam, because one thing I noticed is that in comparison to, let's say, Saudi Arabia or... Afghanistan, Palestinians are not that radical, not that extremist in their interpretations of Islam. We just kind of wandered around and asked kind of different sectors of the population what they thought. And actually, I didn't expect anybody to say yes to the caliphate. It just, I'd never really heard much about it. So um, it turns out a lot of them do. Who knew? So. Hmm. So pivoting to sort of the domestic Israel situation, a lot of your questions are not necessarily about Israeli-Palestinian, Palestinian-Israeli, but delving into very complicated issues within the Israeli political scene. You have this series on ethnicities in Israel, Ethiopians, Yemenis. There there are a lot of sort of jokes and, and things that exist for kids, but that people as grown-ups in Israel don't necessarily always like to talk about. What did you find out about Israelis' own sort of ethnic self-identification with that one? With generations, obviously, that'll get weaker and weaker. Just in the same way that you have U.S., you have people who are Jewish or 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 Italian, or maybe not Jewish is a good example, but Italian or Irish, and people hold on to some elements of their ethnic identities even when they move to a new country and and they become part of, you know, they become American. The Eastern cultures, meaning Syria, Iraq, Morocco, uh, Egypt, they're much stronger. That's culture in general, Israeli culture in general. First of all, they're the majority. They're 55 percent of the, of the population, and they have, well, inter- they have a much more interesting culture, frankly. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, I'm a European Jew, I don't find our food very good, I'm, you know, I'm actually interested in my history personally, but 
I, you know, I find our history kind of sad and depressing. Um, whereas, you know, from coming from the Eastern side, it tends to be mostly more vibrant, interesting, warm culture, particularly in Israel. I, I noticed that this is, maybe this is just me, but uh, uh, Jews or European Jews in America or Canada or wherever are much more uh, warm than European Jews in Israel. That's at least my experience. And I, I tended to be, my entire Israel experience actually was with Eastern Jews. So that's actually how I just sort of see Israel. They kind of, you know, if you want to talk about culture war, I think they, they, they won. And for good reason. They have good food, they have good music, they have a warm and inviting culture. Ours is, a, you know, a little less so. So you, have, you tend to have Eastern Jews who kind of hold on to those elements a little bit more. They're also newer. I mean, most Eastern Jews have been here for 67 years, whereas a lot of the European Jews actually came in the 20s and 30s, at least the you know, European Jews of today. People are closer to have grandparents that were born in Morocco or Libya or Iraq. Um, you have more of a connection to it. Um, actually, the original reason behind that was... All these people, um, Muslims from North Africa and Iraq, Syria, saying, when are the Jews coming back? You know, I don't have the heart to tell them, sorry, they're not. <laughs> they just they don't want to go back. And they wouldn't believe me if I did say it. So I figured, okay, let's just go out and ask. Like, that was one of the end questions is, you know, why don't you want to go back to Syria? And, of course, you know why. But let them tell people who come from Iraq, why they wouldn't go back. Because I guess if you're living in Iraq, you just think, look, this is my life. You know, I don't understand why the Jews left. So they, they don't quite get it. That's, I, I figure it's always better to deal with what exists and what, um, what is as opposed to what you want things to be. Along those same lines, uh, you did a really telling video on why Ashkenazim tend, tend to vote left and why Mizrahim generally vote right. Why? What's your analysis of why this is largely still the case? Identity politics. You have people vote based on the families that they come from because that's how most people are. Mostly in Eastern cultures, meaning Arab, and I include Israeli in that, you, there's a lot of pressure to vote certain ways. There's a lot of family pressure to vote a certain way. So because labor ignored the Mizrahi Jews for so long, they went with Likud, Likud paid attention to them, and you know, good for them for doing that, um, meaning uh, politicians. Where, where's the new generation? You know, and uh, you see a couple here and there, but there should be more. For a party that claims you know, it's, it's representing that, that group, then there really should be more. But that's you know, my criticism. They phrase it, we understand the Arab mentality because we're, we, under, we lived under Arab rule for so long, so we know what they're capable of doing. Um, we know how pride, they will live and die for pride. So we know that we have to control them with an iron fist. That's how they frame that aspect of it. Go to the Palestinian street, the, the guy who's willing to kill somebody, he's the one who controls. It's not the intellectual, it's not the it's smart guy, it's not, not the wise person. It's always the, or mostly, it's the strong. And there's a certain truth to it. My joke about that is what I learned from this project, meeting Palestinians, and absolutely based on, is that the right wing in Israel analyzes the Israeli-Palestinian conflict much more correctly than the left does. But I would say they're leaving out a huge aspect that they know about, about the whole pride culture, in that I would say, why can't we show them a little bit more respect and honor in the areas where, I mean, just being good human beings, that, that would be my take on it. But in terms of how they 
see the Middle East as a jungle, I would say, yeah, that's, that's pretty correct from my experience. And this is being in the West Bank, being in Jordan, act and talk when they aren't, mostly when they're not answering questions because you tend to get more information from people when you're just asking random questions and they, it leads to other things. So you talk about the idea of truth. Going back to your general approach, do you reject the culture of political correctness? Do you think that the level of truthiness that you're bringing out in people is superior to what one might hear in the mainstream media from cable news networks? Um, how do you gauge this sort of level of truth that you're able to pull out of people? Well, I think truth is more important. Um, I'd rather know, and if I ask a dumb question, you know, even minorly offensive, uh, and I know I offend people, I, I, I for sure will ask very, uh, and purposely will ask questions, because I really want to tell people react. People have asked me incredibly, you know, in my life, uh, incredibly inappropriate and horrible questions, <laughs> and I just go, eh, whatever, what am I going to do? There's no point in being offended. Obviously, if somebody has a question, I remember somebody once telling me, well, maybe the Jews just deserve the, the treatments they got, you know, and I remember thinking, God, I just wish I could slap this person, but... You know, some people think in, in, in simplistic ways. The truth about what all these people are thinking and doing and why they're doing it, what motivates them. So I'm not a big um, believer in being politically correct. Although there's a few of those questions that I had a very hard time asking because I felt very uncomfortable. I can relate to the people who cringe when, you know, when they hear some of my questions. That gets into something, Corey, that um, I'm very curious about. What is the worst rejection or reaction you've ever had, the most negative experience asking someone a question? I was in Jerusalem the other day, and I said, can we ask you a question? And, ah, you're a leftist. And I just was like, okay, okay, that's what I kind of want to, because actually the question was, how do you define left-wing, how do you define right-wing, right? And I thought, oh, good, you're perfect. So I, you know, saw this opportunity, and the more I kept asking, the more he said, you garbage, you fuck out of here, get out of here, I don't want to see you, I hate you people, you can go live with your Arabs, we don't care. I don't know, somehow I feel a little bit protected by the lens. So even if they get a little bit mad, you know, they're still on camera, so they're not going to do too much. Were you ever in a situation where you feared imminent violence, whether... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a couple times. Not so much on the Israeli side. There's ones that I'm not worried about. I talked to... turns out one person I, I interviewed who I didn't know is a friend of my brother-in-law's, and apparently he's like in the mafia or something like that. That's just what I was told. I have no idea. It doesn't, but I wasn't afraid at all, even though I knew he was kind of a tough guy. And I don't think anything on the Israeli side is going to happen to me. So what are your personal politics, Corey, and what are your solutions, given that you're so involved in the field of conflict resolution? I tend to still vote left, at least in the last few elections. I wouldn't mind voting somewhat center-right if there was anyone I could, any Israeli politician, sorry, who I would believe in. So I, I, I believe, okay, when it comes to the, the conflict, I don't see any solution that's going to work at all. Probably the best bet is some forced two-state solution, and I know Palestinians don't want it, and a lot of Israelis don't want it, Israelis are much more willing to compromise on it. I don't think it'll actually work, or there's two sides of it. So on the one hand, I look at Palestinian friends and people I meet there who are really lovely people, kind and nice, and they just kind of want a good life. And I keep them in mind thinking, I want a solution that they feel that they have some, you know, some power or some agency, some, um, some uh, way of feeling that they got something out of this. It can't really cross the red lines that Israelis won't allow. For example, the right of return. 
that's just something I don't know any Israelis who will agree to that one. You know, five million people being given the right to return to Israel, that's not going to happen. I don't want them to have a state that protects Palestinians. So I don't know if that's a solution. I don't really know if I have a solution. There's lots of people talk about confederations and, you know, alternative ways or, you know, having some sort of canton type system. If you could do that, I, I would have no issue. It's all one land. So I don't, I, I don't see how. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Corey. Everyone, feel free to check out the Corey Gilshuster channel on YouTube for lots more of these really interesting videos. You'll learn a tremendous amount about the conflict, about how to get people to give answers that reveal what they really think. Next week, we'll be coming back to more local national American issues with sectarian racial ethnic conflict here at home and that's all for now air brooklyn your host ben piven over and out ciao ciao